Located in Pierce County, Western Washington in the city of Lakewood are the remnants of a once critical military installation known as Fort Stillicum. It occupies the same piece of land where today's Western State Hospital exists, another historic topic for a future podcast to be sure. But Fort Stillicum is, by its own right, firmly entrenched in the history of Washington State. Built in 1849 to project American power and secure American interest in the Puget Sound region, Fort Stillicum played a key role in helping to settle what was then Oregon Territory. It served as the focal point for the Treaty Wars of the 1850s and played witness to the judicial murder of an innocent man, Chief Leshai of the Nisqually tribe, about which you can learn more in my Medicine Creek Treaty podcast episode. Fort Stillicum also rose to the forefront of history during the San Juan Island Pig War of 1859. Again, which you can learn about from that episode of the Washington Our Home podcast. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. And on this episode of the Washington Our Home podcast, we're learning about the part Fort Stillicum played in the ongoing story of Washington including an interview with the first native member of the Fort Stillicum board. This, my friends, is Washington, our home. Let me begin by telling you the story you're about to hear can be found in its entirety at www.historicfortstillicum.org spelled S-T-E-I-L-A-C-O-O-M, compiled largely by John McPherson and Dwayne Colt Denfield, Ph.D., with supplemental research and writing by Jim Lauderdale and Walter Neary, among others. Over the years, historians have researched the history of Fort Stillicum to provide an accurate account of life at the military post during its period of significance. This research led to the creation of a nonprofit to oversee the historic property known as the Historic Fort Stillicum Association. Its board of directors developed an interpretive plan for the site, created a voluminous research library, and have continuously worked to recreate a more accurate depiction of the first U.S. Army post in the Puget Sound region and its effect upon area residents who had already been living here for generations. After the Puget Lobe of the Cordilleran Ice Sheet receded 13,000 years ago during the last Ice Age, the 640 acres of what's now the Fort Stillicum Historic District was a hunting and gathering area for the Nisqually and other native people. The land was later known to Europeans as Oregon Territory, which included present-day Oregon, Washington, and most of British Columbia. In 1818, the United States and Britain agreed to joint occupation of this land, and I have that in quotes. British interests attempted to cultivate the specific prairie where the fort is today into farms in order to seek to retain British influence in what was destined to eventually become part of the United States. The first farmers there were settlers from the Red River area of Manitoba, Canada. One of those settlers, John Flett, would later return and become a businessman in what became the city of Lakewood. The second farmer was Joseph Heath, who left a detailed diary of his effort to make the gravelly soil productive, and of his interactions with Native Americans, British, and Americans. Heath died on that farm in the spring of 1849, leaving behind buildings, which are no longer standing, 
that housed the first incarnation of what became Fort Stillicum. Meanwhile, a treaty in 1846 between Britain and the United States determined what would become Washington would be a U.S. territory. In the aftermath of the Mexican-American War and facing the rapid settlement of the Pacific coast in the wake of the California Gold Rush, the U.S. Army established Fort Stillicum to both project American power and secure American interest in the Puget Sound region. Fort Stillicum was a key element in America's new Pacific defense system. First manned by soldiers of Company M, 1st Artillery Regiment, beginning in August 1849, the fort's first buildings were built on land leased from the Hudson's Bay Company for $50 a month. Think about the significance of that. An American Army fort is on property that was leased from the British Hudson's Bay Company. Upon this site, the artillerymen moved into Farmer Joseph Heath's buildings and also built a few other simple log structures. And by 1853, Fort Stillicum was now a part of the Army's Department of the Pacific in the brand new Washington Territory. Fort Stillicum grew in size and importance with the arrival of two companies of the 4th Infantry Regiment in 1853. In 1854, soldiers from these companies were detached to assist in survey and road-building work throughout the Puget Sound region and across the Cascades through Natchez Pass. These troops also aided in protecting the property and personal safety of recently arrived American settlers. With the influx of these new settlers in the autumn of 1855, many natives were growing frustrated with the drastic change to their way of life and growing violence against their communities. After the first series of treaty negotiations, the area saw increased tensions and violence between the settlers and the original inhabitants on both sides of the Cascades. Fort Stillicum served as a temporary refuge for settlers fleeing the threat of violence. Notable Washington pioneer Ezra Meeker described the scene as follows. A sorry mess of women and children crying, some brutes of men cursing and swearing, oxen and cows bellowing, sheep bleating, dogs howling, children lost from their parents, wives from husbands, no order, in a word the utmost disorder. In explaining the conflict after the events had taken place, Fayette McMullen, then governor of Washington Territory, wrote to U.S. President James Buchanan, saying... Native peoples complain that the government of the United States has been giving away and is still selling their lands to settlers, without making them any sort of compensation, that they have in good faith made treaties with the agents of the United States, whereby they were to receive compensation for their lands, and that these treaties have not been carried out in good faith by our government. They also say they are put off with the promises by the Indian agents with the sole purpose of keeping them quiet until the white population becomes strong enough to drive them off entirely. They do not understand by what right these things are done and upon what principles of justice the government refuses to ratify the treaties and pay them for their land, while it yet passes laws giving away and selling their homes, their hunting grounds, and their graves." Reasoning thus, they regard the settlers as trespassers upon their domain, and consequently view them with extreme jealousy. The town of Stillicum was seriously undermanned at this time. Most of its troop complement had taken the field, 
Skirmishing and patrols of both regular and volunteer troops took place during the autumn of 1855. Fort Stillicum took on the appearance of a fort under siege. It was in December 1855 that Fort Stillicum lost one of its favorite officers, Lieutenant William Alloway Slaughter, in an ambush along the Green River. Lieutenant Slaughter and two of his enlisted soldiers were brought back to the post for burial. Meanwhile, General John Wool, the man in charge of the U.S. Army Department of the Pacific, dispatched the first regular Army reinforcements to Fort Stillicum in November of 1855, with the deployment of one company of soldiers from the 3rd Artillery Regiment, commanded by Captain Erasmus Darwin Keyes. They were followed shortly by the arrival of a new post commander, Lieutenant Colonel Silas Casey of the 9th Infantry Regiment. Fast fact, that name should sound familiar to any true Washingtonian. On August 10, 1859, Lieutenant Colonel Silas Casey departed from Stillicum under a blanket of fog and landed reinforcement troops on San Juan Island to establish American dominance during the Pig War. When British forces on the island woke up the next morning, they quickly discovered 461 new American guns and 14 cannons trained on their warships in the harbor. Lieutenant Colonel Silas Casey is also the father of Thomas Lincoln Casey, the noted American military and civil engineer who oversaw the completion of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., and after whom our own Fort Casey on Woodby Island is named. Now, several companies of the 9th Infantry Regiment, with Captain Keyes' artillery troops and troops of the 4th Infantry, marched out of Stillicum in February 1856 to confront Native American warriors along the Natchez Pass Road. In conjunction with soldiers of the Washington Territorial Volunteers and allied Native Americans, those would be Native Americans friendly to the United States at the time, the American forces engaged in aggressive patrolling and occupation of key trails and traditional food gathering sites of the Native American population. Several sharp firefights occurred near the White River, particularly in the area of Connell's Prairie in today's community of Bonnie Lake. A successful raid on the warrior camp near the Michelle River by Indians under the leadership of Snoqualmie warrior Putcanum effectively quelled the warring at present. Later raids by volunteers and the failed attempt to wipe out the fledgling settlement of Seattle undoubtedly weakened the resistance movement. However, many consider the uprising to be successful, as it did lead to the renegotiation of the Medicine Creek Treaty at Fox Island in 1856. These renegotiations led to the expansion of the reservations and the addition of the Muckleshoot Reservation, among a few other things. Most Native people were removed to the reservations designated in the treaties. By late March 1856, the Puget Sound phase of wider conflict had concluded. Continued murders and fighting occurred, but none involved the federal troops of Fort Stillicum. Now, the betrayal of a leader... Leshai of the Nisqually, by his former allies, and his ensuing two trials, strained relations between the officers of the fort and local civilian authorities. Leshai remained incarcerated at Fort Stillicum after a failed attempt on his life in the office of none other than Washington Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens. Although Lieutenant August Kautz presented convincing evidence at trial proving Leshai's innocence regarding the murder charges levied against the chief, Leshai was declared guilty based on, quote, new evidence provided in the form of eyewitness testimony newly discovered in that second trial. 
A legal controversy ensued between territorial government officials and the fort's officers as to how to proceed with carrying out Leshai's death sentence. Lieutenant Kautz borrowed the use of a printing press in Stilicum, and with the aid of Dr. Tolmy from Fort Nisqually, after whom Tolmy State Park is named, vigorously defended the innocence of Leshai in two editions of a newspaper called The Truth Teller. In the end, Leshai was hanged by civil authorities, not regular army troops. Lieutenant Colonel Casey demanded that if there was to be an execution, Leshai would be executed at least 300 yards off post and that his men would not be involved in the affair at all. Casey would later be burned in effigy by settlers who thought of him as too conciliatory to the native peoples. In the second edition of The Truth Teller, which appeared after the judicial murder, Kautz wrote, The main feature of the present state of affairs is the case of Leshai. This Indian, having with all his people concluded terms with Colonel Wright, Governor Stevens refused to regard the truce. He offered a reward of $500 and succeeded by treachery in bringing him in. On the 19th, a homicide was perpetuated by the sheriff of Thurston County in the vicinity of Fort Stillicum by hanging the Indian chief Leshai under an order from the district court. In a legal point of view, his case is the most remarkable on record. He is perhaps the first man ever arraigned by the civil courts for an act of war, of which in truth he was not guilty. Convicted finally by a jury which had prejudiced him, all clemency was forestalled by the remonstrance of a prejudiced people, and he was at last executed contrary to law. End quote. Kautz was referring to Colonel George Wright, who recruited the 9th Infantry Regiment from Virginia to Washington Territory and oversaw the construction of Fort Dalles in Oregon Territory in 1858. George Wright was a pivotal Eastern Washington figure during the Treaty Wars. Now, in 2004, a specially convened historical court of inquiry and justice, headed by a Washington State Supreme Court justice, ruled that no one should have been put on trial because the killings had occurred in a time of war, and therefore Leshai was officially exonerated, albeit posthumously. In 1857, Lieutenant Colonel Casey secured federal funds to expand and modernize Fort Stillicum as befitting its status as district headquarters and its expanding role in local affairs. The fort now served as the central hub for military operations in the Puget Sound region, operations that included local security, road building, and frontier constabulary. Lieutenant Kautz supervised the removal of the original log buildings and the construction of new stick frame and brick structures. Kautz utilized the labor of both soldiers and civilian contract laborers in the raising of the new fort buildings. Foundation bricks were fired right there on site. Finnish lumber was purchased from local mills, and Kautz employed an innovative water ram to increase the speed of construction. Concerns over the supply of communications with and reinforcement of military posts from Vancouver Barracks to the Cowlitz River to Fort Stillicum and northward to Fort Bellingham led to plans for the construction of a military road between these points. Survey work was completed by soldiers of the 9th Infantry assigned to Fort Stillicum, 
and contracts were awarded to various speculators for the construction and maintenance of this new road. While a rough-hewn east-west freight road had been initiated between Fort Stillicum and Walla Walla using the Natchez Pass route, originally a native trading route, this new north-south route, unfortunately, was never completed. Events back east dried up federal funds for the project. Fast fact, the northernmost American military post in Washington Territory in 1855 was Fort Stillicum. But the Army had decided to build another fort on Bellingham Bay, so settlers wanted a road between the two for safety reasons. The Stillicum-Bellingham route wasn't Washington Territory's only military road built in that era either. There were also routes connecting Fort Stillicum to Fort Walla Walla over Natchez Pass, Fort Stillicum to Fort Vancouver, Fort Vancouver to Fort Dalles, and Fort Walla Walla to Fort Benton on the Missouri River 633 miles away in central Montana. The north-south military road in western Washington never saw much in the way of military use, but it did create a reliable overland route, much of which later became the route of Highway 9, Highway 99, and Interstate 5. Many of today's short stretches named Military Road on Beacon Hill in Seattle, between Burien and Milton in Pierce County, and a few short stretches in Spanaway and Stillicum, lie atop the very roads first built back in the 1850s. News of the presidential victory of Abraham Lincoln reached Fort Stillicum in early December of 1860. The southern states almost immediately began to secede from the United States in response to Lincoln's election. Federal arsenals across the South were seized and their contents redistributed to rapidly mobilizing rebel forces. In response to this threat, Lincoln called for the concentration of federal troops in the East. Fort Stillicum was then a flurry of activity as its companies packed and prepared to assemble with their respective regiments in ports in California. Upon redeploying to the East, the regular soldiers of Fort Stillicum would be part of the Federal Division, the trained professional nucleus within what would become a primarily volunteer force, formed for the purpose of putting down the rebellion of southern states. Soldiers of the 4th Regiment assembled with their fellow companies in Southern California for transport to the East Coast. Soldiers of the 9th Regiment expected to do the same. However, threats of Confederate sympathizers and the potential for both foreign and Native American attack convinced President Lincoln to keep the 9th Infantry on the West Coast for the duration of the Civil War. The draining of federal troops from Fort Stillicum necessitated the recruitment of volunteer troops to take their place. Washington Territory was never able to recruit enough men to fill the ranks of an entire regiment. Instead, the territory supplied two companies of troops and filled the rest of its allotted regiment with California volunteers. During the American Civil War, Fort Stillicum was manned by companies G and K of the 1st Washington Infantry Regiment, as well as by soldiers from the 1st Oregon Infantry Regiment and Company E of the 4th California Infantry Regiment. These volunteer troops were part of a much larger organization of West Coast regiments called the Army of the Pacific. In the absence of regular army soldiers, these citizen soldiers took on the task of maintaining the peace between native peoples and often hostile settlers. They also improved and protected established communication and transportation routes. By the middle of April 1865, citizens of the town of Stillicum and volunteer troops at Fort Stillicum had received the news of the Confederate surrender at Appomattox. 
Even before the end of the war, volunteer officers had begun tendering their resignations and the companies of volunteer troops had begun to dwindle in size. After the war, soldiers of the 14th Infantry Regiment were stationed briefly at Fort Stillicum. By 1868, confrontations with Native Americans east of the Cascades prompted General Halleck to reallocate U.S. Army resources. Many of the posts established on the West Coast during the 1850s were closed, including Fort Stillicum. The 640-acre fort and farm site was turned over to Washington Territory. In 1871, territorial officials used the fort's buildings and property as the Insane Asylum of Washington Territory. This asylum would continue to grow over the years. Many of the Post's original 1857 buildings would be torn down and replaced by newer, more modern facilities to support the needs of the asylum. Later, the asylum replaced its territorial name with the moniker Western State Hospital. Today, four of the fort's original buildings remain on site, open to visitors and school groups alike. The Post's Catholic Chapel was moved in 1864 and currently serves as an active congregational gathering place in downtown Stillicum, not far from the fort. Lakewood and Tacoma historians were concerned about the deterioration of the structures in the late 1970s and submitted an application in 1978 for designation to the National Register of Historic Places. Beginning in 1983, local volunteers raised funds and donated generously of their time and skills to renovate and restore the original officers' homes that had been left in disrepair. This dedicated group formed the Historic Fort Stillicum Association to not only restore the buildings, but also interpret the site for future generations. The association currently sponsors monthly events and activities promoting the history and personalities associated with Fort Stillicum. The HFSA is a nonprofit organization run by volunteers whose board meets each month to determine the direction of the fort's interpretation. These volunteers host various work parties, living history demonstrations, guided tours of the fort buildings, and lecture programs. I was fortunate enough to be invited to give one of those lectures several years ago on Fort Stillicum's involvement in the Pig War of 1859. The HFSA also operates an on-site museum and gift store that's open to the public throughout the year. The association recognizes that there are several histories to interpret at Fort Stillicum. There's a legacy of interaction with the land that goes back thousands of years and involves Native people, the British Empire, U.S. expansion and settlement, and the history of treatment of mental illness. The story of the fort includes the well-documented interaction of the soldiers and others who are less documented, including women of all backgrounds and Native peoples. Other documented interactions include those with settlers and politicians from early U.S. settlement and British and others from Fort Nisqually. There are so many stories to tell, and thanks to the addition of the first Native person to the Association's Board of Directors in 2020, those stories will now take on a depth never before seen in the Fort's interpretive history. We'll hear from Puyallup tribal member Charlotte Bash about her thoughts on uplifting Native perspectives at Fort Stillicum in just a moment. But first...
It's trivia time here on the Washington Hour Home Podcast. This is the part of the episode where I ask you five multiple choice questions and you get to remember your answers and see how you did at the end of the episode. All of today's questions are drawn from what we learned about the history of Fort Stillicum, so if you were paying attention, this should be easier than landing troops on San Juan Island in the middle of the night. Question one. Everyone knows that Isaac Stevens was Washington's first territorial governor and the man primarily responsible for creating the conditions that led to the Treaty Wars of 1855 and 56. Who was the second territorial governor? The one who wrote to U.S. President James Buchanan about local Indians regarding the settlers as trespassers upon their domain and consequently view them with extreme jealousy. Your possible answers are Charles Mason, Perry Mason, Fayette McMullen, or Mike Mulligan? One of those men is the correct answer. Question two. In an effort to help free Nisqually Chief Leshai before his execution, Lieutenant Couts borrowed the use of a printing press in Stillicum, and with the aid of Dr. Tolmy from Fort Nisqually, mass-produced a newspaper. What was the name of that publication? Was it The Truth Teller? The Tell All? The truth will out, or to tell the truth, which I think was the name of a game show. Question three. When Lieutenant Couts began to modernize the facilities at Fort Stillicum, he opted to replace the rough-hewn log structures with new stick frame and brick buildings. From where did he get the bricks to supply his construction effort? Your answers are the lime kilns of San Juan Island, the Coke Ovens in nearby Wilkeson, the Hidden Brick Company out of Vancouver, or they were made and fired right there on site. Question four. After the closure of Fort Stillicum, the property was used by Washington Territory for what became Western State Hospital. What was its original name in 1871? Your possible answers are Hospital for the Treatment of the Insane, Institution for the Mentally Ill, Insane Asylum of Washington Territory, and Western State Mental Hospital. One of those four. Question five. How many of the fort's original buildings are still currently available to tour? And I don't mean the original, original log cabin type structures. We're talking about those stick frame and brick buildings that Couts had to build to modernize the fort in 1857. Your choices for the number of the fort's original buildings currently available to tour are one, two, three, or four. If you've been paying attention, these should be somewhat easy. Answers at the end of this episode. Now that we've learned a little bit about the history of Fort Stillicum, it's time to dive into an aspect that has perhaps had the least amount of attention over the years. The story of the fort from the indigenous perspective. Remember, the 640 acres of what's now the Fort Stillicum Historic District was once prime hunting and gathering territory for the Nisqually and other native people. It was their ancestors against whom the U.S. Army soldiers and territorial volunteers fought during the Treaty Wars. It was their people who saw the government of the United States giving away and selling their lands to settlers without making them any sort of compensation, according to the governor of Washington at the time. 
So it is a momentous occasion that the Fort Stillicum Board of Directors has recently elected not one, but two native individuals to their ranks, one from the Puyallup tribe and one from the Nisqually tribe. And I had a chance to speak with one of them about their thoughts on the subject. Joining me now is Charlotte Bash, the Historic Education Coordinator for the Puyallup Tribe's Historic Preservation Department. She's an enrolled member of the Puyallup Tribe. She's also Clatsop Nahalem, with family across the Columbia River in Oregon. Charlotte, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how long have you been on the Board of Directors? I recently joined the board at Fort Stillicum, not this last December, but the December before, so just a little over a year now. And it's been fun. It's an interesting cross, I guess, between my personal and professional lives. So it's been quite an experience. Have you always been interested in history? I have. You know, growing up in the Northwest and specifically in my tribal community, I've always had an interest in culture and in history and specifically in the interpretation of history. To be quite honest, growing up, I was kind of frustrated (laughs) about one of the few Native kids in the school system and the schools that I went to. And I was very, very lucky to have parents and adults around me that helped me redirect some of that frustration that I felt around not seeing my story, my family's story, my community's story represented in um, whether it was museums or curriculum. And so I had these adults that helped me redirect that and figure out a way to kind of infiltrate the system, I guess, and get into the field and try to make a difference in how we share and understand and interpret history from the inside. So you grew up on a tribal reservation, but you went to non-tribal schools? I um, was born in Seattle and then spent, I'd say, the first half of my childhood on the Puyallup Reservation in Fife. Um, I went to both Chief Leshai schools, which is owned and operated by the Puyallup tribe, as well as um, the Fife School District. And then around middle school, my parents moved us down to my dad's homeland on the Oregon coast in Seaside, Oregon, and finished out my middle school, high school years there. So kind of a mix. I feel like I was able to actually experience a lot of different school systems um, and education systems throughout my childhood. Growing up in those systems, you no doubt heard a very different story of the treaty wars here in Washington state. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, I don't remember learning about the treaty wars. Um, Growing up and going through the school system, learning Washington state and Northwest history, the most memorable part of those history lessons is really Lewis and Clark. That's where the most emphasis was put on that I can remember. And if we did learn about the treaty wars or specifically the settlement of Washington territory, it was a very specific perspective you know, of non-native settlers in the area. I really didn't know a ton about it until I came back after college and made my way back to Washington and I started working for the tribe. And there were bits and pieces of my family history that I knew that I had ancestors who fought in the treaty wars or who were warriors around the time of the treaty. And it wasn't really until I started working for the tribe that I placed all of that together. I took all the puzzle pieces that I had from my own childhood and family oral histories and pieced it together and realized, oh, that's my family history of the treaty wars. So it really wasn't until then that I put it together and started realizing that I had a very incomplete perspective of Washington state history, and I guess Native American history in Washington as well. And that history brought you to the Fort Stillicum Board of Directors. 
How did that come about? I started working for the Puyallup tribe, and one of our first major projects was actually opposing a housing development out near Bonnie Lake at Connell's Prairie. And again, like I said, growing up, I actually didn't know a ton about the treaty wars and diving into that project where it was not just representatives from the Puyallup tribe, but representatives from Nisqually, Squaxin Island, from Snoqualmie and from Muckleshoot all coming together, sitting at a table with a bunch of different representatives and actually pushing back and saying, no, this place, this Connell's Prairie is incredibly important to not just tribal history, but Washington history, and it needs to be protected. And I sat there listening to my leaders, my elders, my boss, (laughs) my coworkers talk through this history and the importance of this place. And I thought, I didn't even realize how significant this was. And I think a testament to how little most Washingtonians even know about this history is the fact that the majority of Connell's Prairie, where a number of battles during the Treaty Wars took place, is almost completely developed. It's no longer really even a prairie. You can go out there and barely see the mountain anymore because there's so many housing developments now. And people don't know the significance of the place that they're living on. We actually ultimately did not succeed in stopping that housing development from moving forward. So I worked with the housing development to create a number of interpretive signs that will go around the housing development telling the story of that prairie from the local tribal perspective. So that kind of connected me then, of course, to Fort Nisqually and Fort Silicon and contacts there started conversations moving um, with Jim Lauderdale at Fort Nisqually. Um, and he actually is the one who looped me in with the Fort Silicon group. It's been really fun being a part of that group. And I think it's, I'm, I'm supposed to be there at this time. So that's been great. So what do you look forward to contributing to the Fort Silicon board and the interpretation of its historical site? Just thinking about Fort Silicon and the board itself, there are so many different perspectives and experiences of Fort Silicon and its history. And I think the board has done a really, really incredible job making sure that the fort has a place today in the lives of folks in the Lakewood community and the greater Washington community. But I do think that there has been efforts to build those connections with the local tribal people, um, but they haven't really been sustained. And so I think bringing me onto the board and hopefully putting effort to bring more Native people and Native representation onto the board will allow us to uplift some of those more diverse perspectives. So that's what I'm hoping to bring, I guess, is that both my personal and professional background and connection to Native communities today, as well as historic perspectives of Native people. How will your professional background help tell the story of Fort Stillicum more accurately? My professional background is in, I have a master's in museum anthropology, so along with my personal connection to tribal issues and communities, I also have that background in museum interpretation. So I'm hoping to bring those together and speak on both of those matters or represent those perspectives, I guess. You know, it makes a huge difference when you have people represented actually from those communities that you're trying to talk about. It's a lot more powerful when you can have that first-person experience. So I think getting more community members on the board that can actually speak to their community's first-hand experience with the fort is incredibly powerful. 
Charlotte, you were also involved in a pivotal podcast and video series put together by Fort Nisqually, Metro Parks Tacoma, and a number of area tribes called the Puget Sound Treaty War Panel, which helped to increase representation of Native voices in the telling of 19th century history. Can you talk about your experiences with that effort? Sure. Yeah, I was on one panel to speak a bit more about the lasting impacts of the treaty and the treaty wars. Um, But I was originally contacted by Fort Nisqually, I think it was late 2020, actually. Um, 2020 was a really difficult time for many people. And I was seeing this influx of interest in uplifting diverse stories and histories. And my response to a lot of these was, okay, we want to see you do this good work to represent communities of color, but how can we do this in a lasting and sustainable and meaningful way instead of just making, you know, one social media post or something? And so out of those conversations, I was really impressed to see the fort come back and say, well, let's do a panel series. Let's get Native people on our platform. Let's use the built-in audience that we have as Fort Nisqually to share these perspectives, share these histories. So meeting with tribal representatives from the local tribes, we decided to put together, I think it was four panels with topics centering around the treaty wars, but they just blossomed. We realized there is so much that needs to be said. We can't constrain any of our conversations to one single topic because they're all so deeply connected. And the interest was incredible. There was so many people that attended these events. You could tell that our community, tribal and non-tribal communities, were hungry for this information. Everyone, whether it was conscious or not, knew that they were missing this part of the history. Um, Through my work also with Fort Stillicum, I'm hoping to see more partnerships like that happen with Fort Stillicum and local tribal communities as well. Very good. Charlotte Bash, Historic Fort Stillicum Board of Directors and Puyallup Tribal Member, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. You bet, Charlotte. And if listeners would like to check out those panel discussions on the Treaty Wars, I'll include a link in this episode's description. Now, time to answer our trivia questions. Question one, everyone knows that Isaac Stevens was Washington's first territorial governor, but who was the second territorial governor? The one who wrote to US President James Buchanan. If you said Charles Mason, I'll give you partial credit. Mason was the lieutenant governor under Stevens and often filled the role of governor while Stevens was away negotiating treaties. But the official answer is, in fact, Fayette McMullen. Question two, in an effort to help free Nisqually Chief Leshai before his execution, Lieutenant Kautz borrowed the use of a printing press in Stilicum and printed only two issues of a publication known as... The Truth Teller. Question three, when Lieutenant Kautz began to modernize the facilities at Fort Stilicum, he opted to replace the rough-hewn log structures with new stick frame and brick buildings. From where did he get the bricks to supply his construction effort? Your answers were the lime kilns on San Juan Island, which used a great deal of brick, but didn't actually make any. The coke ovens in nearby Wilkeson, again, also made out of brick, but used to make coke. 
the Hidden Brick Company out of Vancouver, which supplied the bricks for the Providence Academy. We talked about that in the Mother Joseph podcast episode. No, the bricks that modernized Fort Stillicum in the late 1850s were in fact made and fired right there on site. Question four, after the closure of Fort Stillicum, the property was used by Washington Territory for what became Western State Hospital. What was its original name in 1871? Your possible answers were Hospital for the Treatment of the Insane, Institution for the Mentally Ill, Insane Asylum of Washington Territory, and Western State Mental Hospital. The answer, of course, is the Insane Asylum of Washington Territory, which sounds a little like where Batman villains are created, and I, for one, am glad it is now known as a hospital. And question five, how many of the fort's original stick frame and brick buildings are still currently available to tour? The answer is four. There are four buildings on the property in Lakewood that anyone can visit and tour. Quarters one, the commanding officer's quarters. Quarters two, the laundress quarters and enlisted barracks. Quarters three, the sutler store, junior officer's quarters and hospital ward. And quarters four, where you can get general site orientation and purchase something to remember your visit at the fort's well-apportioned gift shop. That's it for this month's episode. If you get a chance the next time you're in the Lakewood area just south of Tacoma, I highly recommend you stop and tour Fort Stillicum. Tours in 2022 are available from 1 to 4 p.m. on the first Sunday of each month and the first and third Sundays of the months during the summer. Admission to the Interpretive Center is free, and guided tours cost $5 for adults, $3 for youth, and a family of two adults and up to four kids is only 10 bucks. Please reserve your tickets online in advance to ensure capacity limits aren't exceeded. You can do that at www.historicfortstillicum.org. Many, many thanks to John McPherson, Jim Lauderdale, Walter Neary, Dr. Dwayne Denfield, and probably several others for providing the text for today's episode, which can also be found on the Fort Stillicum website, historicfortstillicum.org. Please take a quick second to rate this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, Amazon, whatever podcast listening service you use. More ratings means more people find the podcast and help spread the word. A five-star rating would be much appreciated. Anything less than a five-star rating, please feel free to reach out and contact me at eric, that's E-R-I-C-H, at washingtonourhome.com to send any feedback, ask any questions, or even sponsor the show. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes featuring stories from Washington State history, heritage, and culture, and follow Washington Our Home on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's lots of great content on our YouTube channel, and if you're looking for scenic pictures from around the state, go right to our Pinterest pages. Until next month, I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington. Oh,